0: Taking a road trip in America can put you in touch with the local flavor of a region. And the people who literally know what that means are back today on Travel with Rick Steves to inspire us in our boundless search for memorable road food and regional specialties to enjoy. Jane and Michael Stern join us in a moment to respond to your suggestions for places around the country worth a drive for a stick-to-your-ribs good meal, or an unforgettable dessert.
1: You know, I think in general, the Pacific Northwest has really taken the lead as to sweets and ice creams.
0: And for cultural and culinary adventures in Europe, you just can't beat the back roads of France. Today, we'll be exploring the Celtic and Norman roots of Brittany and Normandy in northwest France with the help of two guides who live there. In Brittany, there are festivals all the time, everywhere. Patrick Vidal's roots run deep in the rustic Breton soil and he's joined by Tony Clark, who'll help us take in the delights of Normandy. The sights and flavors of small-town America and France are on the menu in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Are you ready to do some traveling? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at ways to connect with the local cultures of both America and of Northwest France. Our guides to Brittany and Normandy join us in a bit. We're at eight seven seven three 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 rick or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start with a return visit from our friends, the Stearns, whose specialty is finding the memorable road food diners and mom and pop joints that reflect the flavors of America. <music> of course, when you travel, Eating is one of the most important bits of sightseeing you can do. Take your tongue out sightseeing a little while. In the United States, <laughs> uh, you're looking for culture. Uh, when it comes to cuisine, big part of it is road food. I think that's one thing America must excel in. And uh, the local experts here on road food are joining us, Jane and Michael Stern, authors of Road Food USA. Jane and Michael, thanks for coming back.
2: Hey, Rick. Hi, Rick.
0: On our last interview with you, we had a shower of... Um, Tasty emails, people responding to your tips. Uh, our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Katie from Portland emailed us, and she said, I first discovered papooses from El Salvador when I lived in San Francisco. It was the thing to eat after midnight, hot and filling and a dollar apiece. Can't do better. What does Jane and Michael think of those? And have you seen these in any other cities around the country?
2: Strangely enough, Danbury, Connecticut, which is the closest city to where we live, has a thriving Central American community, and there are a couple of restaurants in Danbury, Connecticut, that do serve papooses, mm. and they are a wonderful dish. They're kind of like scaled-down pasties, but spicier, mm. uh, in the sense that they're a wonderful kind of self-contained thing you can just pop in your mouth without using a utensil.
0: And Loretta in Timonia, Maryland, emailed us, and Loretta writes, About that red flannel hash, my mother in Aroostook County, Maine, always served beets as a side dish the first time around for the corned beef. As a leftover, she ground the beets with the potatoes, cabbage, carrots, onions, corned beef, and cooked the hash in an iron spider or frying pan to give it a good crust. The red flannel hash was breakfast
2: food. We love red flannel hash, and... It's kind of a rarity. I mean, there are a few diners up in Maine that still serve it and one in Vermont. But it's something that is more of a home-cooked dish than a restaurant one nowadays. Okay. And that's typical of Maine or the Northeast?
1: Well, you know, Maine is very big on root vegetables, turnips, Uh and beets. And the fun thing about the red flannel hash is the beets turn the potatoes and the meat Bright red. So it's very festive. Okay.
0: Would they serve that with cheese or just, uh, corn? I guess, corned Never beef?
2: Never saw As cheese As a general on rule, it. not. Don't forget, these cooks tend to be the thrifty sort. And adding oh, okay. cheese would make it a little bit too fancy. Because
0: uh, I'm coming from my European heritage, and it sounds like roasty, where they have this nice oh, uh, you know, yes. the hash with the carrots and the onions and some uh, the local yeah, cheese. Yeah, well, it
2: is
1: uh, I would not
2: kick uh, red flannel hash with cheese on it off my plate, let me tell you that. <laughs> now, Erin emails us from
0: Dallas, and she writes... Pie Town, New Mexico. A woman owns a cafe on this little stretch of highway through Pie Town, blink and you'll miss it, and she serves pie until it's all gone. Up to 20 different kinds of pie, offered a la mode or plain. I had the cherry oatmeal pie. My boyfriend had peach crisp, pie that put my grandmother to shame. Delicious pie in Pie Town.
2: Do you know Pie Town.
1: No, we must have been
2: blinking when we drove through it. But any place with a name called Pie Town demands our attention, let (laughs) me tell you that. And we have Deb
0: on the phone in Albany, New York. Deb, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Do you have some road food ideas to share with us?
3: Oh, yeah, I do. I work with uh, a college in the area, and we hosted a bunch of Chinese students who are coming over to look at different parts of America. And we wanted to show them, like, some real American food, not, you know, McDonald's and that sort of thing. So we took them to Vermont one day, and just outside of Rutland in a town called, on Route 4 called, I think it's Menden, is a place called Sugar and Spice Restaurant, and it's in a working sugar house. So in the springtime, when they're making their maple syrup, the, you're, you're, like, sitting there, and the, the sugar thing is in the bottom basement the pancakes are to die for. They probably have 12 different kinds of Mm. really good pancakes. They have ones called Sugar and Spice that have cinnamon and um, brown sugar in them. Um, And they also serve delicious ice cream. If you go there, get the maple cream because it's really, really nice. So
0: (laughs) Rutland, Vermont, Sugar and Spice. It's
3: just outside of Rutland, Vermont. It's a town called Menden, and I believe it's um, Route 4.
0: Deb, thanks for your advice. See you there. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And Greg in Bellingham, Washington, emails us. He says, I wanted to add my favorite ice cream place to Jane and Michael Stern's list, Mallard Ice Cream in downtown Bellingham, seasonal unique flavors of ice cream and ices, including cardamom ice cream, lemon mint ice, wild cherry chocolate ice, cayenne chocolate ice cream, and multiple varieties of peach, apricot, and berry ices. Plus, where else do ice cream businesses provide theater workshops and hire university instructors to lead philosophy seminars for its employees? Sounds classic Bellingham to me and some pretty tasty flavors there.
1: You know, I think in general the Pacific Northwest has really taken the lead as to sweets and ice creams. The uh, incredible cupcakes we had there at
2: Cupcakes. Cu- donuts, and ice cream ha- are all, like, just thriving in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. It may have something to do with the fact that they all go so well with coffee. But uh, one of our favorite places to get ice cream is at the Tillamook Cheese Cooperative on the, on the shores of, um, of Oregon, where they make the Tillamook cheese. They also make many wonderful flavors of ice cream there.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. That, cardamom. But For, not cardamom. Not cardamom.
2: That sounds fabulous. fabulous. Oh, baby. Cardamom. We have an email from
0: Helen in Palmer, Alaska. And I don't know if your book goes to Alaska, but she says, I use no. the cheeseburger to evaluate roadside cafes, one of the best in Alaska is at the Mandarosa Roadhouse, just a couple miles north of Nenana, or 50 miles drive out of Fairbanks, next time you're in Fairbanks. Uh, <laughs> there you go, so if you're in Alaska right. listening. And uh, here's an email that says, I want to thank the Stearns for their career long, long career of championing food as something to be enjoyed and shared. Living in Southern California, where cupcakes have been banned from classrooms since the early 1990s, I'm kind of at ground zero for 21st century obsession of demonizing food. I recently ate with a friend who was amazed that I ordered a chocolate chip croissant. But you're so healthy, she said. And I told her, I don't eat based on healthy. I eat based on whether it's good or not. It seems like a lot of people have lost all touch with the whole point of eating. They're more inclined to regard their food with suspicion or fear than with a sense of gratitude and pleasure.
4: Please,
2: please, please
0: keep up the good work and the writing. I've been a fan for 20 years now. Well, that's encouraging, Stearns. Amen. Amen. (laughs)
1: I'll tell you, when Mayor Bloomberg bans salt from restaurants in New York is the day that I... Move give to uh, Costa Rica. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> to get papooses in El Salvador. I'm Rick Steves.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through the United States here, recognizing road food as part of our cuisine, our culture. And we're joined by Jane and Michael Stern, who write the book on road food called Road Food. It's a perennial, out every couple of years. 600 pages of listings on good places to eat as you're driving around the country. They've also written a book called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Mike, you've spent 30 years enjoying and and assessing quality road food. When you look at a hamburger, what do you see? What do you look for, just visually?
2: Personally, I like the crust of a hamburger. You know, not that I have anything against the softer kind, but what what really sends me into orbit on a good hamburger is the kind where you you can almost hear it crack when you bite into Mm. it, and when it cracks, juices ooze.
1: Yeah, not well done hamburger. No, no,
2: no. I want the inside rare, but yeah. I want the outside It's crusty. like
1: Pittsburgh steak, you know, which is charred. Ah, I mean, you're talking about I mean, the crust of the meat. Yes. I was yes, thinking yes. the
2: bread. No, you're talking oh, about the crust. Oh, no, of the bread the is meat. irrelevant. No, ah. it's got
1: to have a charred crust, like yeah. like a Pittsburgh style steak, but
2: blood red in the middle.
0: Now, is that the mark of a good hamburger joint? Do they recognize that, or, or is this something that frustrates you and know, you can't find it?
2: The, no, you can find they, I, I would go to the Pine Club in Dayton, Ohio, and you get that hamburger to the T. It's one of the best anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, the fact is there are so many different styles of hamburger. I mean, I personally love a slider, you know, which is the itty bitty, like one ounce hamburger that has kind of no redeeming value whatsoever, except for the fact that it's always served in these great greasy spoons. I mean, I think to do what we do, you have to have extremely broad taste and not be a fan of only one kind of hamburger. If you were, it would be pretty limiting.
1: Where's the best sliders that we've had? At the horseshoe?
2: Well, no, the best sliders, in my opinion, are in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at a place called Crazy Jim's Blimpy Burger. Uh, they may be a, a tad bigger than sliders, but the fact is they're so small that nobody gets less than two to three or four of them in a bun.
0: Oh, okay, so they're, they're small patties in a bun or little tiny mini yes. hamburgers?
2: No, no, they're small patties. Uh, the bun is normal size, and in fact oh, it's a very good I've bun. Oh, i you, you can that. get anything up to a quint huh. with, like, Literally two million different variations of topics. Sliders. Literally. Now, in your two book, million? Yeah. <laughs> My well, <God>. in <laughs> your book,
0: uh, Jane and Michael, you say. Uh, Connecticut is like the burger capital. What is it with Connecticut and well, Cheeseburgers.
2: Steamed cheese- Well, no, steamed cheeseburgers mm. are just a branch. But we're talking about great cheeseburgers. Oh, Louis like okay. lunch? Like Lewis the Lunch. Home, the original Lewis lunch hamburger. where the hamburger was invented. We're also talking about Shady Glen, where we have this wonderful way of making cheeseburgers so that the cheese kind of melts onto the griddle. And as it's just about to turn hard, the chef kind of folds it up with his spatula so you have like a, a flower, I mean petals of cheese atop well, it sort of
1: looks like the main terminal at JFK Airport. It's that,
2: <laughs> but much more appetizing <laughs>
1: <laughs> on a big bun. <laughs>
0: you guys make me want to go eat something really juicy on the side of the road. I'm talking with Jane and Michael Stern, authors of Road Food. Their website is roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, let's close this thing off with just one little capper. You've you, you've had a, uh, your three meals, and you're looking for something sweet and just fun. Uh, and you're somewhere driving around the United States, uh, and and tie in the ambience of the place as well, where would you cap your day with a nice dessert in a a memorable sort of uh, setting? The
1: the Cherry Hut in Beulah, Michigan, especially this time of year.
2: It's surrounded by groves of cherry trees, and they make their cherry pies from scratch. And one of the nice things about the Cherry Hut is that when you order a slice of pie you get 1 quarter of a cherry pie preferably a, a full size cherry pie preferably warm and preferably a la mode with the mm. vanilla ice cream melting how long has that it. place been there since the 19- 1922 it opened
0: yeah pie should be warm and with vanilla ice cream don't you agree mm.
2: yes we, we know a restaurant that charges you extra if you don't <laughs> order it, all la
0: <laughs> That's good attitude. All right. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been eating our way through the United States uh, with the authors of Road Food USA, Jane and Michael Stern. Jane and Michael, it's always fun to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank bye, bye, Rick.
5: Rick. I am Ebenezer, bleezer. I run bleezers, ice cream stow. There are flavors in my freezer you have never seen before. Twenty-eight divine creations Too delicious to resist Come on, do yourself a favor Try the flavors on my list I got almond, hammering, salami Yeah, anchovy, prune, pastrami Sassafras, souvlaki, hash
0: Next, we're cruising the rugged beauty of northwestern France with guides to Normandy and Brittany. We're at 877-333-RICK or send us an email to radio at ricksteeves.com. France has got to be one of the most diverse countries in all of Europe, and there are endless charms. The more you know France, the more you appreciate it. Two provinces of France that a lot of us overlook are Normandy and Brittany. Brittany is a Celtic land. It's actually not French ethnically. It's Celtic, like the Welsh and the Irish. It's rustic, and it's uh, off the beaten path. It doesn't have as much tourism as you'd find elsewhere, like in Provence or Burgundy. Normandy is famous for its Norman roots. Normandy from the Northmen or the Norwegians that came in the Viking Age. Of course, uh, the Normans then, later, invaded England in the Norman Conquest. And we know Normandy today for the heroics of the uh, D-Day invasion that was sort of the first step to pushing Hitler back and ending world War II in 1944. Today, we're going to talk about Brittany, and we're going to talk about Normandy with two friends of mine who are guides in France. They live in France. They take groups around France. Coincidentally, both of our guests lived in Burgundy, and a few years ago, they moved over to Brittany. Patrick Vidal joins us, and Tony Clark. Uh, Patrick is um, a Frenchman, and Tony has uh, moved from Britain. Tony, how long have you been in France?
5: 20 years now. 20
0: years. So you probably speak the language by now. I do, by now. All right. We're going to talk about Brittany first. Uh, Patrick, how would you compare and contrast Brittany with Normandy if somebody is thinking about
4: side-tripping from Paris to check out one of those provinces? What's the difference? Practically, Normandy is more accessible. I mean, it's just the idea. The problem with Brittany we've always had is that uh, to go in depth in Brittany, you've got to go far. It's a peninsula, and uh, going to Brest, you've got to go far. You've got to cover distance there. And okay, so uh, Normandy
0: is easily accessible, almost a commuter trip. By absolutely, fast train. yes, Normandy. Exactly. But if you're going to go to Brittany, it's far to the west
4: tip of France. Much, 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 much further. There.
0: But culturally and, and lifestyle, and what would you experience as a traveler, the
4: difference? Well, uh, culturally, I mean, uh, going to Brittany is like, it's like going to a Celtic country. You, say, you mentioned that it was Celtic roots there. Uh, Normandy is much more. Much more French, if I may say that. That's you, a good way you don't it. you don't move out of France when you go to Normandy. When Brittany has got a different feeling, Brittany, Brittany has got a Celtic feeling, much more.
0: Tony, you've lived in Brittany for two years now. You lived in Burgundy for a couple decades before that. How would you characterize Brittany compared to, say, Normandy?
5: I would say it's uh, it's more rustic. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, I find the people more hardy. I'm amazed at how people get out and walk, no matter what the weather does. And both Normandy and Brittany are known for the rain. And yet, I find in Brittany, it doesn't really affect people. They just get out, they hike, um, they go to the coast on a windy, rainy, wet day. When the wind's blowing, they'll go to the coast and they'll walk. Well, they're, um,
0: they're Celtic, like the Irish. That's I mean, right. In, when the Irish, it's, it's not raining, it's, it's soft weather, you know. And uh, there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. That's so, it. So they, they have that rustic, sort of tough, in the weather, do, Celtic spirit. As
5: opposed to maybe along the Normandy coast, you'll get people dressed up walking along the boulevard.
0: Do either of you know the uh, connection with the word Brittany with Britain?
4: I think think it comes from the uh, Celtic roots either. When the Angles and the Saxons moved to England, they pushed the Celts which were there They went to uh, they stayed in Wales in Scotland where they already had their culture there. But some of them just rowed out, rode out, went on their boats, and uh,
0: generally, what century was that? When
4: oh, we're talking about fifth, sixth century. So So in the Dark Ages, yes,
0: (laughs) in the Dark Ages. And there's six Celtic nations. So these were pushed from England to what are the six Celtic nations
4: around England? We've got Scotland, Wales, and Cornwall. Uh, We've got Ireland, of course. We've got Brittany. For those of us who uh, went on the boats and missed Brittany, they kept roaring, and they ended up in Spain, in, in Galicia. Galicia, yeah.
0: And Galatia has that uh, mossy, green, rainy sort of feeling absolutely, also. Absolutely, the same type of weather. And yeah. that rugged Celtic kind yeah, of spirit. Yeah. So if you're in England now, you've got what the English sometimes considered the Celtic Crescent surrounding mm-hmm. them. Six Celtic nations. And well, you mentioned Cornwall. That's probably the most obscure of the Celtic nations uh, because that language went extinct. But yeah, it actually had its own language for a while. And that would have been the southwest tip on England. In England, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now when you think about the Celtic people threatening their parent nations. You know, the Irish and the Scots have a little trouble with London, and the people in Brittany had some problem with, with Paris. I seem to remember when I was first travelling long, long time ago, there was a real serious concern about Britain secession movement. If you named your child a, a Celtic name, you 'd have some trouble with the French government. Uh, what what's with yeah,
4: that? yeah I, I don't I don't think you went to the uh, cessation kind of You had the political parties and kind of the marginal people talked about that there I mean, if you think of that in France, you think more of Corsica, which is an area which has always been on the verge there of thinking, oh we, do we want to be French, not we want to be French. Brittany, I don't think it's gone that far, but it's definitely in the 1960s, uh, 1970s, when, uh, when a, th- a type of the hippies and all that one of the big thing which came in France of the renewal there is rediscovering the local identities there. Ah. And the Brittany one was the one which really boomed. And, and became ba- very, very strong there. Really? And uh, yeah, they kind of redeveloped their music. They relearned their language. They, they kind of pushed on their culture very, very, very much. Uh, much more than anywhere else in, uh, in France. This is the only regional culture which has got music which evolved from traditional music to modern music. You've got Celtic rap. You've got Celtic uh, jazz. You've got Celtic rock. You've got the uh, Brittany people playing Brittany music with electric guitars. And yeah, that's a way to fun.
0: to vent your national spirit. Absolutely. When you are mm-hmm. a, a nation without a state. Yes. To the Britain people, mm-hmm. they are a nation yes. without a state.
4: Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: I, I remember the bookstores were like
4: fronts for the political movements. Yeah, it's, it, I don't think it's, it was only in this period. I mean, it's always been like that. When you think of the flag of Brittany, it was created in the 1920s for the local people to kind of reunify around the, uh, around the flag and uh, around the, the, the identity. They never lost it completely there. And they've always been fighting against the central power, the central country there. How would a traveler feel the spirit of
0: the Britain people, that Celtic kind of pride? Tony, when, if you have a guest coming to visit you in Brittany, uh, how would you let them feel that sort of uh, local spirit?
5: Well, already you see the Breton flag flying everywhere, something I haven't noticed, particularly in other parts of France. They don't show their flag, their local flag, so much. You see it in Brittany everywhere. You'll also see uh, all the road signs written in the Breton language as well.
0: Really. Are there people that speak Breton as a first language?
5: There are not, I think, not very many left now, maybe some of the older people, uh, but Breton language is still widely taught, um, mm. where both Patrick and I live in very southern Brittany there, the original culture isn't quite so obvious. A little bit further up in the Finistère region in the uh, northern part, it really is much stronger.
0: I've heard if you look at the periphery of Brittany, you have a different intensity as to the interior of Brittany. Where would you feel the Britain spirit more strongly, Patrick?
4: You got to go deeper into Britain, there, uh, inland. That's inland. For, for sure, inland. But more west. You got to go west, okay. and you got to go to the area called the Finisterre, which is the end of the earth. There, Finisteria. Okay. And you've got, to, uh, you've got to go really inland in those areas there. And the culture there is still still very strong. Do they, they teach uh, Britain language in school as a second language? N- not really. There are some private schools which mm-hmm. are doing immersion in uh, in Britain, which is called a uh, School Divan. And it's all over, all over Britain there. Yeah. And it's very easy to put your kids into, into uh, an immersion in, school.
0: In Europe, I, I think a lot of people who have these smaller languages understand oh, you're going to have to speak French or, or English to connect with the, the, the modern economy and so on. But they still pride themselves in keeping their culture alive with their language. And you'll drive around the the countryside of of Ireland, I remember, seeing signs that proudly say this school is taught in the old Gaelic language. Do you have the similar thing? Yeah,
4: exactly the same thing with, as Tony said, I mean, the the road signs are written. uh, It's funny, where where we live there, the Brittany language hasn't been spoken for more than 1,000 years down there because uh, history have made that uh, the Gallo language which was different, different that was a mixture between French and Brittany kind of spread around there and took some of the uh, different areas there and where we are living there it's, it, it was a based of the La- Gallo language which was not Brittany language but when they renew the roads now I put the new signs they put the signs in Brittany language that's just, for the, t- the just talking, for the pride like 20 flying the Absolutely. flag and you want to have your
0: name and yeah. I would imagine some people might even well in some countries you see that the two na- languages and one would be disfigured The the national language and the local language would, would be all, all alone I'm speaking with Patrick Vidal and Tony Clark uh, two tour guides who know France very well and have both decided to live in Brittany I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK, and you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. We have uh, Rebecca on the line in Vidalia, Georgia. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a comment or a question for Patrick Gortoni?
6: Um, a, a comment, I guess, of uh, how much I enjoyed uh, going visiting Dinant uh, a couple of summers ago, just a charming little town, and just found it so interesting.
0: Now, Dinan would be one of the most uh, obvious places to visit, I would suppose, in Brittany. Patrick, what is, what is your take on, on Dinan if, well, if somebody's going to I'm Brittany.
4: coming back to what we said originally. Dinan is very easy to reach because it's on the fringe of, uh, of Brittany there. It's, the, it's quite an essential uh, Brittany town there. You've got the old uh, half timber houses, you've got the, you got the flag flying everywhere, you've got the crepe and galettes uh, restaurant, the creperie, and everything you, you expect to find in a, in a Brittany town. So uh, it's accessible. And uh, and you get and your uh, you got it and your you got showcase it yeah. sort of Brittany Absolutely. culture. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, why did you like Dinan? D
0: I N A N.
6: I I have to tell you that my favorite experience was uh, I took took the riverboat um, that goes through the canal, and it's just a, a very homegrown sort of uh, sort of experience with uh, mostly uh, native uh, French people. In fact, I think I was the only one who spoke English. And on the way back, the tour guide handed out uh, song sheets with uh, French folk songs on them. And being a musician. I just was delighted to be able to sing along with uh, with all these French natives, these wonderful little French songs, a few of which Americans would know, and most of which they wouldn't.
0: Uh, Rebecca, what are your memories with the uh, cuisine?
6: Um, I travel alone, so I don't eat, uh, you know, in, in big fancy restaurants. But uh, the cafes were delightful, very rustic uh, French food. I would say I can't I can't bring back <laughs> a particular meal. All right. but, uh Good. Very, very tasty, of course, and the wine, of course, was wonderful.
0: Nice. Well, thanks for your call, Rebecca, and continued happy travels.
6: Thank you, Rick, and thank you for about 30 years of uh, wonderful European travel.
0: Oh, very nice. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs>
6: Bye-bye.
0: Tony and Patrick, when we think about uh, Brittany cuisine, galettes come to mind, right? Absolutely. What's the difference between a galette and a crepe?
5: The difference is a galette is made with the dark buckwheat flour. So that will always be for the savory. If you're having, you can literally have eggs and bacon, all sorts of different fillings. Just about any filling that you'll get on a pizza, you'll get in a galette. The crepe is made with the white flour, and that will normally be for dessert.
0: Oh, okay, so the buckwheat um, savory crepe is a galette, and that would be typical Brittany. And you order it filled with your choice of anything, just like a pizza. Exactly. And Patrick, the cider.
4: The cider is, uh, is uh, yeah, it's made with apple. It's, uh, it's alcoholic, but pretty slightly alcoholic, and it's, uh, it works very well with the crepes and galettes. Right. Uh, so it's that's a, a good nice marriage drinking. there. Yeah, Gallet yeah. And but you know, it's, when you go to restaurants, you don't drink the cider in a glass. I mean, historically, Brittany was a very poor country, and uh, having glasses was too expensive. So they had mugs or little cups there, and or little bowls. And uh, when you go to Brittany, you ask for a bolet. Boule, boulet, boulet, B-O-L-E-E. A little boulet. rustic pottery bowl yeah, filled abso- with your uh, beer strength cider. And when you walk in the restaurant, most of the time, if you look at the, on the table there, instead of a glass on the table, you will have a little cup, a boulet. A little boulet, yeah. Ready, right. ready for your cider.
0: Tony, when you think about Brittany just physically, the coastline is really dramatic.
5: It really is. I would say even more rugged than up in Normandy. You know, you've got a huge, huge coastline in Brittany because you've got so many rugged little inlets. Uh, I was just driving uh, a couple of weeks ago down the coastline. As soon as the weather gets bad, everybody goes out to the coast to see the spectacular waves crashing along the uh, the granite rocks. So you'd have
0: genteel resorts in a graceful coastline of Normandy. And then you get to Brittany, and it becomes: let's go see the waves crashing over these pinnacle rocks, and so on.
4: Yeah, much more spectacular, much more rugged. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And the history goes
0: long back before the Celts were there.
4: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's uh, we've got those uh, megaliths that we can find in Carnac and in different places there. This, I think this is one of the largest place for those megalith dolmens. So megaliths and, uh, are, are like stone structures from yeah. this, from the Stonehenge time. Absolutely, thousands yeah, of yeah, years yeah, before yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You go to this town of Carnac, and you've got thing of, I don't have the the figure in my head, but something like four thousand to five thousand standing stone in lines on fields there and basically we don't know anything about them there i mean you go there and they explain to you that's that's well we know pretty much when it was done there but we don't know how exactly we don't know why we don't we don't have any proper explanation for that there, but it's fascinating. So it's, it's like an open air folk museum. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, with, yeah. N-
0: with no information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: <laughs> what millennium is it the from? The thing that was uh, six, seven thousand years before Christ there. Incredible! Hundreds
0: the, of these stones, Stonehenge type stones, either like um, holy grounds, celestial
4: calendars, ritual burial grounds. Nobody really knows. No, 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 nobody's sure. The burying part there on the on the dolmens, the standing stone on top there. Yeah. Those ones they're a bit closer to make sure that it was burial and, and it was tombs. for the tombs. So that yeah. would be uh, two stones with a capstone yes, on the top. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They
0: stand sort of boldly on the horizon, but would those have originally been underground and then erosion
4: exposed them? Very unlikely. I mean, they are. most of them are already pretty clean and pretty... So uh, they were built yeah, originally underground. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tony, yeah.
0: what's your take on the, the megaliths of Carnac, C-A-R-N-A-C?
5: They are very impressive, um, Some people think they're just a big bunch of standing stones and, you will just go flying right on by. But it's the mystery about them, the fact that we don't know, really, why they are there, what their purpose is.
0: But it's a strong reminder that there were people here doing lots of stuff thousands of years before... Even the Celts came and gave it the, the Celtic culture we see today.
4: Absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm. it was it was lived in, and there was a culture there, and it was a strong culture when you think of that, because that's a that's a and one of many world.
0: strong cultures. So you've got that hard fought kind of past, and as you travel around, you see indications of that.
4: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's right there. Yeah. Castles, yeah, castles. We got a lot of castles. Brittany is a peninsula, so you for a very long time they had to protect themselves against the uh, the rest of the world, against France, against Normandy. If you go to uh, to Bayeux, you discovered a tapestry. You discovered that uh, William the Conqueror at some point came down to Dinan and burned down the walls in Dinan there. So they had a line of castles on the what they call the march land, les marches de oh, Bretagne. Oh, that would be the
0: land protecting Brittany Absolutely. from invasions from the from, inland. From
4: Nantes in the southern part to Dinan in the northern part. It goes through Fougères. Ah, it to... So it's like a
0: peninsula with a coastline protecting it and then a line of castles protecting it from the rest of France? Absolutely, yeah. And I remember that from my travels. I mean, towns that... Whose names I didn't even recognize,
4: Magnificent Castle. On mm-hmm. some of the tours we do in Brittany there, we stop in Fougères, and Fougères has got this amazing chateau there. It's a lovely And when you
0: think time. about Celtic cultures, you think of singing Welshmen, you think of Irish pubs and Irish music. There must be a Celtic connection with music. In there Brittany. certainly
5: is. The Bretons love their festivals. A lot of religious festivals, but also particularly partying at night. I was surprised when I first moved to Brittany to see these fest-noz, which literally means night festival in the Breton language, advertised everywhere. You know, in other parts of France, you might have your annual festival in the summertime, which will last one night. In Brittany, they're going on all the time. Every tiny little village will have its festival.
0: Would they be in a pub, or what's the venue for this music?
5: Um Possibly in the local bar, but there's usually a big hall. Um, ah, the local okay. Saldifet, the hall where they have them, sometimes even outside in the main summer time. You'll put up a tent, and you'll have your partying and drinking. So when you travel cider. in Brittany,
0: you're likely to stumble into a musical festival featuring oh, the yeah, Celtic yeah. culture. But
4: it's, it's not necessarily only about music. It's about dancing as well. Dancing is a huge thing there. People love their dance there. There must be something like 600 different type of dances in Brittany of different type of little rhythm and things like that there. And when this music starts, two seconds later, you've got the entire crowd dancing hand in hand in front of each other or next to each other there, and they all dance the same thing. And you just think, where did they get that from? It's just unbelievable. And old people, young people, it's still strongly part of the culture. I mean, everybody does it. They love it. It's a big thing there. I've got some some friends, musicians, who have been moving around quite a bit there, and they say there's there's two places in France when you can make a living about music. It's Paris, because everything is centralised in Paris, and it's Brittany there. Anywhere else in France, very hard to survive as a musician there in Brittany there are festivals all the time everywhere That's, and that uh, would be in that Celtic blood it's, it's part of it yeah river yeah. dance yeah. comes yeah, to France exactly we are far, right. not far from that
0: Yeah. I'm Rick Steves this is Travel with Rick Steves we're in Brittany with Patrick Vidal and Tony Clark momentarily we're going to Normandy thanks for traveling with us We'll find out why some Parisians think of the coast of Normandy as the 21st neighborhood of Paris. And we'll hear itinerary suggestions for honoring the region's important battle sites. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. And you can post your own travel stories to France in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by tour guide friends of mine, Patrick Vidal and Tony Clark, who both live and work in France. And now we're going to look at Normandy. When you think about Normandy, what is it nicknamed? The the 21st Arrondissement or
4: something like that? Yeah, I'd say it's more linked with one town of uh, of Normandy called Honfleur there. Paris has got 20, 20 districts, the, the, the 20 arrondissements. And then uh, there are so many people in Paris with both places in Normandy. That's that the beginning of the 20th century when traveling along was a bit harder there. People would look for the sea that, as the closest there. Now the Parisians go down south to the... Uh, to the Med, but, we, okay,
0: uh, with the TGV, the bullet train, you can get down to the French exactly, Riviera in, yeah, what, five yeah, hours or exit, something.
4: Exactly, so that's nothing anymore. But uh, when traveling was not as easy there, people would go to Normandy because it was very, very close by. So Honfleur became kind of a suburb of Paris and to take this uh, nickname as the 21st district. The uh, 21st district.
0: And the Brits also love Normandy. I think a lot of British people come over. Uh, Tony, you you're, uh, were raised in Britain. Uh, how, what's the British take on Normandy?
5: I think the British love Normandy... Partly, it's one of the closest places to Britain. Um, it's a little more attractive than further up in the northeast, which would be a little closer. I have got
0: Alsace and Lorraine. That's more industrial and has really less charm from a, a tourism point of view as, as Normandy, I think.
5: That's right. They've got, uh, again, the beautiful coastline in Normandy, a much more rugged coastline, and the rolling hills. And I think because of this Parisian influence over the years, it's a little bit chic as well, right. a bit smarter
0: is there an ex- a British expat community in Normandy?
5: There is both in Normandy and Brittany, that whole northwestern part. Uh, but in Normandy again, because it is uh, it is so close. I understand
0: they even get BBC on their on their TV yeah, and that's right. There, so yeah, you really have a, it's a comfortable. Normandy. You get the French cuisine and the, and the British news.
5: You don't have to go far to get a totally different culture.
0: Tony, take us to Enfleur and Rouen.
5: Two very very different towns. Rouen being inland, but set on the River Seine. Um, So there's a lot of industry, actually, in Rouen, but right in the centre there, you've got its beautiful cathedral. It's particularly famous for its cathedral. Claude Monet spent time in Rouen and painted that cathedral many, many times. If you think you've seen it before, you may have visited the Orsay Museum and seen his painting. They very well restored the city after the war. In fact, they moved out some of the old timber-framed buildings that had survived further out of the city and rebuilt them on the main city square around a brand-new church that they built dedicated to Joan of Arc.
0: Who was burned there, right?
5: Who was burned there.
0: Whoa. So this is Rouen, R-O-U-E-N, uh, heavily damaged in the war, now beautiful half-timbered center, modern cathedral, memorial to Jeanne d'Arc, en fleur.
5: En quite different, up on the estuary of the river, opposite the huge... Industrial town of La Havre. To this day, it is still a tiny town. This is where many of the uh, great adventurers took off from.
0: And some people call it the birthplace of the Impressionist movement. That's right. The rallying cry of those artists: out of the studio and into the sun.
5: Indeed, there's and a to beautiful this day, museum there. You see people oh.
0: setting up their easel, capturing that light on that beautiful harbor in Honfleur. Patrick, when I think of Normandy, I just think of invasions. Give us a little potted history of the invasions of Normandy.
4: Yeah, quite a few invasions, yeah. That's a country of uh, of moving around there. the The first idea is that the name Normandy comes from the Northmen. It's the uh, there it was the Vikings. They they were coming around uh, following the European coast, and every time they found a river, they would up uh, the river and try to raid any any town they would find on their way. And after having raided Paris a couple of times. The king of France, in the, we're talking about the 700, 800 years uh, after after Christ there. So these Vikings would raid up the in, rivers inland, all the way, yeah, all the inland, the way to Paris. yeah, absolutely, yeah. They did reach Paris a few times there. And these so, are in the 800s and the 900s? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah sure. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So the king of France decided, okay, we've got to do something about that. So we can't let those guys take our land like that. And he decided to sign a treaty with them, giving them some land, on the western part of the river, close to the, close to the sea, where the next time some Viking would come, they'll bump into uh, Viking guys, blonde, blue eyes, uh, tall guy.
0: So you Norwegians hang out together there, and uh, we'll even call it uh, the land of the, North, but the that's, Northmen.
4: That's, the, that's the, the local people who said, okay, that's the Northmen, Norsemen, Normandy. I guess they wanted to rape, pillage,
0: and plunder, but they also wanted farmland.
4: Oh, that's the story of uh, Europe. I mean, it's Everybody kind of wants a, farmland. In mean, Norway,
0: uh, like 3% of the land is farmable, absolutely. and you go down to Normandy, yeah. whoa.
4: Yeah, exactly. It's it's the story of Europe. If you look at the tribe traveling around and moving around all of all over Europe in the lower medieval time, there, it's it's land. It's finding land. It's expanding. It's uh, we need to find new farming land again. So that's uh, so you got this Viking uh, settlement of Normandy. Does that change the uh, what's in the blood of the people today at all? Ah, uh, you still find more blonde, blue eyes, tall people in Normandy than anywhere else in in France. That's for sure.
0: Now later, those Normans wanted to invade even beyond Normandy.
4: Yeah, well, that's not that long after, in fact, when you think no. of it. I mean, the the Treaty of Ept, which was signed by uh, by the King of France and Rollo, the uh, the chef of the the Viking at the time, there was in nine oh six, if I've got it right, and uh, the uh, ten sixty six is the invasion of uh, William going to England. So it's not very long after there. And, that's uh, really not,
0: and that's the date every every schoolchild knows in in England. I would imagine France too. Ten sixty six. Ten sixty six. Yeah. Absolutely. Norman invasion. Battle of Asting, Yeah. That was the invasion from France to England. Uh, the other way around, yeah. We're we coming back and trying
4: to regain our land. That's uh,
0: As a tour guide, what is your strategy to help people enjoy their, their visit and their memorial visit, really, to the, to the D-Day landing sites?
4: I think the key point, it's finding somebody who knows about it, who can really tell you the stories about it, who can really take you inside the thing there. Seeing the site is in- interesting. You've got so many of them. You, you get a good image of what's going on down there. But you need the stories. You need the explanations. You need the uh, the personal touch that the local guide will give you. And there are plenty of them doing those tours down there. You can do it by the day, by the week, by the little vans and things so like that. So from
0: a practical point of view, what's your best home-based town for exploring the Normandy uh, D-Day landing sites?
4: Well... Uh, Don't go far from Caen, Bayeux or Aromanche are two towns which are... Bayeux is perfect because everybody starts from Bayeux. Bayeux is great. It's a nice little town. Now, speaking of, uh, you know,
0: bases for uh, studying these invasions, of course, Bayeux is famous for the Bayeux Tapestry. Yes. Which is the long, long embroidery, what is it, like 100 100 yards long or something, Mm -hmm. that shows Mm -hmm. scene by scene the Normand invasion in 1066. And then, of course, Bayo today is a good jumping-off point for going to Omaha Beach and the great cemeteries and memorials from D-Day landing sites. You mentioned Khan, C-A-E-N. There's a wonderful museum there for World War II. I think it's my favorite museum for, for World War II, really.
4: Yeah, but the only problem with this museum, it's almost getting too good. How's that? You can't spend two hours there. You've got to spend a day now. You do. It used it used to be. and remember we visited it together. That's right. right? It used to be you could do with three hours down there pretty easily. Now now they add things, and all those things are great. It's a, it's an amazing memorial there. It's a but museum it, and a memorial. A That's memorial. It. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's the only place, and I like it, I like it for that. It's one of the only places in on Normandy which is more telling you about peace it than celebrates. telling you about yes, absolutely. There, it's more a memorial and telling you, let's go to peace. Let's, 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 let's remember learn. it, but let's learn, but from, let's learn from it there. And uh, I think this is uh, one of the important angles of this museum there.
0: Tony, what's your experience taking groups to the museum in Cannes?
5: Really, like Patrick says, now you do need a full day. But it's fascinating. I think you need to combine that with, of course, a visit to the beaches.
0: The actual beaches. By the way, that museum is in the town of Cannes,
4: C-A-E-N. Absolutely. Don't, don't mistake it for Cannes. Ah, that's important. Ah, which I don't have the same, Ken, the same idea. And that's the
0: sister city is Beverly Hills. That's yeah. <laughs> the city on the, on the coast, uh, uh, the, the south coast. Not the same que Toronto. The Riviera. Did I get my French pronunciation right? Can? Cannes? Cannes. Cannes. Cannes, yeah. Can.
4: Can. All right. Now, if you're going to be going to the actual beach sites,
0: what's your strategy?
4: Either you take one of those person I was talking about there, one of those local, local guys there yep. who can take you in the van and, and take you around, or if you don't do that, you've got to have a car. You can't do it by public transportation. It's too complicated. frustrating. It's little not corners, efficient for your little, time. little, little yeah. things there. So you need to rent a car there. Manch is a great place to envision the, uh, what is it called,
0: Port Winston, mm-hmm. the biggest port. They threw this port up, a huge port, just with a bunch of floating pontoons to facilitate the invasion. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Patrick Vidal and Tony Clark about Normandy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we've got Phil on the phone in Pepperell, Massachusetts. Phil, thanks for your call.
7: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, what's your thoughts on Normandy?
7: Well, I I went there two years ago. uh, It was kind of on my bucket list of places I always wanted to go, and I thought that would satisfy it, and what I found is it really just scratched the itch. So I'm going to be going back this year and spending a little bit more time there. I've always been fascinated by the history of the area. And I've got, uh, I guess, a comment and, and a question for your guests. One recommendation I'd make to anybody is to get off the beaten path. Some of the little country lanes and the Norman towns and, and farms and fields are just beautiful, beautiful countryside. You're still apt to see a lot of history just driving down a little road. My wife and I just took a drive and... Pulled over next to a beautiful farm field to have a a picnic lunch in the car, and I noticed we had just passed a little monument. So after lunch, I walked back to it, and I found that this farm field had been turned into a huge airstrip uh, during the Normandy battle, and no less than uh, Churchill, Eisenhower, and De Gaulle had come through that airport. And now it was, you know, uh, returned to just a beautiful, peaceful farm. So there's still a lot of history and and beauty uh, when you get onto the littler roads as well.
0: Phil, when you're driving around the countryside. What do you do to connect with people? Do you go into a pub? Did you visit a Calvados farm? Uh, What sort of activities can you do?
7: Well, we did uh, go to a couple Calvados farms. Uh, Some of the littler towns, there's not much in the way of pubs or restaurants, and that actually leads me to my question for your guests, which is I'm going to be traveling alone this year, and uh, I'd love some recommendations of, of types of places to eat or to dine, you know, somewhere between fine dining for one and grocery store eating.
0: You know, before we answer that, I'd love to get, I just want to talk about Calvados for a minute. Sure. Calvados is sort of the local fire water made from apples, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's made still. from apple. It's distill, distillation of apple there. And it's strong. <laughs> it's very strong. Yeah, it is strong. Yeah.
0: And, and what's your advice, Patrick, for going to a
4: Calvados farm? Because it's a. Uh, incredible... Don't drink too much of it. <laughs> <laughs> and well, especially uh, if you're driving. Yeah, you yeah especially if you're driving there. But uh, no, it's, it, you find a lot of places when you can taste it and, uh, and have a little sample of it there. Well, the the fact is it's not like wine. Again, it's a, it's a very, very strong alcohol there. So you don't taste uh, five or six different uh, Calvados there. It's a bit of a risky side of the thing there. It's more, for the French people, it's more an, an after-dinner kind of drink there. It's a night cup, I think, as you, as and you mentioned. And when you're it, traveling yeah.
0: around like Phil is, it's just an excuse to meet a farmer and Absolutely. go into a humble little yeah. um, industry.
4: Uh, it's a good excuse as well. When you go to a bar somewhere, I mean, you ask for a Calvados, then and you know. straight away people are saying, oh, uh, he's interested by the local stuff. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about it. And,
0: uh, Phil, tell me about your ex- experience in the Calvados farm. What's your favorite memory having that uh, apple fire water?
7: The memory is really the little farms that, uh, that we went to. I mean, hopefully we'd just see a sign on the side of the road, and you pull in, and there'd be maybe one person working it and no one else visiting and we were there in uh, in early June, so it wasn't you know completely off season. So it was really just not only the, <laughs> the taste of the colvados, but just meeting a local farmer, like you guys yeah. said, and, and and being in a very very rural area where they have a little cottage industry, which is uh, just a neat part of the culture. I think, I think
0: My experience is. is they take more time for a visitor than a lot of other wine regions. I mean, you can stumble into this little yeah. farm speaking English, and they will treat you like you're uh, a big time customer.
7: Yep. Yep. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Now, Phil was asking about appreciating the uh, cuisine and, and eating well on a sort of a range
4: from not, not going gourmet, but to just really connect. The land is green. You got a lot of cows, and you produce a lot of milk. I think a third so of the a big of, deal, of dairy, a third of the production of dairy in France is produced in uh, Normandy. And you know how green is France. I mean, you know that's a big that's a big word there. So Camembert. A lot of cheeses are produced down there. The Pont l'Evêque, the Livaro, There's a lot of names which are known up there. And a uh, lot of the, anything which is going to be called à la Normande, which will, will be made with cream, pretty much there. Right. Any sauce which is uh, prepared with à la Normande.
0: So anywhere in France, if you go to a restaurant and it says à la Normande... It's going to be made with cream. Normandy absolutely. style, yeah. cream sauce.
5: Sometimes with a bit of apple in there. Apple too? That might have been sautéed in some Calvados first.
0: Calvados. So you've got all the, the, I believe it's like the four C's, you've got cider, just like in Brittany, they drink the alcoholic yeah, cider. Based on and the you apples. distill that cider down a little more and you've got your Calvados, you've got your cream... And, of course, from cream comes the camembert.
4: Not a good place for diet, <laughs> when you think of it.
0: Phil, what's your best memory for the cuisine in Normandy?
7: Um, best memory, we went to a, a little seaside town, I think it was uh, Port-A-Besson, and I don't even remember what we ate. We were one of only two couples dining there, and it was uh, just a half a block in from the ocean. I, I remember the scene and the, the aura of the place more than actually what was on my plate, but it was, it was wonderful food and it was very relaxing.
0: Now, Phil, you mentioned when you're doing your sightseeing in Normandy, not to just do the predictable, famous D-Day-related sites, but but poke around and find some more obscure ones. Yes. Uh, what what comes to mind in, in that regard? Because there's three or four places everybody with a guidebook's going to see, but what was something that was really stellar for you that was sort of unpredictable?
7: Well, I, I visited, and I'm going to be going back and staying in St. Mary Gliese, which I thought was, was great. Just driving along the coastal road between the big sites, between Omaha Beach and um, you know all the different beaches, You'll run across a, uh, an, an old destroyed battery of guns or something like that over the seaside or just a monument on the side of the road. And just combining that beautiful seaside drive with you know, history every five minutes um, was really, really memorable.
0: Now, this is pretty well fortified for, from the German point of view. What was your favorite uh, look at German battlements?
7: I'd, I'd have to say uh, point to Hoc. Yeah, I that, think, because, that to me is the ultimate. Yeah, because it's not only the battlements, but you actually see the destruction caused by the bombing, and the craters are, are still there, and it just it makes the whole area very real. You know, it's not just a bunch of concrete, but it's a bunch of destroyed concrete and craters, and you could tell that, that there was a hard-fought battle on both sides. There.
0: And standing in that bluff with those oh. incredible battlements, you can look down and think of the heroics of the Americans yeah. and our allies that, that actually jumped off those boats and scampered across that, that yeah. beach.
7: And I'd like to make a comment about that, too, that something that I consider myself an amateur student of history, and I read a lot about that particular area, but something that I learned when I was there is, coming from the U.S., and I imagine coming from England, we refer to it as the invasion of Normandy. And as best as I could learn, and I, I don't speak French, but they don't refer to it as an invasion, they refer to it as a liberation. Because the invasion had already occurred by the Nazis and they saw us more as liberators than invaders which was just an interesting take on
4: things yeah, It makes sense to the French, you can't invade your own country That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the liberation That's Absolute, interesting, yeah Absolutely, yeah I think, I think Phil summed it up there. I mean, it's, it's one of those rare places where you don't really have to work too hard to be off the beaten tracks. Because any drive you do between two sites there, it's going to be off the beaten tracks. It's going to be on the little roads around and you're going to find everywhere those little monuments, those little museums which are in no books anywhere. Every little town has got a museum about one of the regiments down there, a little monument to one of the other things which happened there. It's great. It's amazingly full of history
0: down there. Remember the opening in Saving Private Ryan when the uh, veteran was there with his grandchildren and he was walking through that cemetery? Mm-hmm. W- wasn't it the cemetery of uh, Saint Laurent? That's right. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the veteran was overwhelmed with emotion and the, and the grandkids were just jumping up and down and, and so on. It was so poignant. And when you go to Saint Laurent, it's really important to get in that frame of mind and think of the heroics and the bloodshed and the stakes were so high. Tony, you've taken a lot of groups to St. Laurent Cemetery.
5: I have, and I'm neither French nor American. You're on American soil when you're at the American cemetery there at St. Laurent. Uh, more than 9,000 were buried there. Um, it always makes me feel extremely emotional. Um, we always make sure when we go as a group that everybody has time to just walk around on their own and take it in. But you can't help but be moved by this site um, and especially the whole situation of it being right up on the bluff you can just walk mm-hmm. down a little way and you're looking right over Omaha Beach they call uh, that
0: the portal of freedom or something looking down
5: yeah wow. and especially when you go you know, no matter what the weather is doing uh, but when you go there on a, uh, on a bright sunny day you, know, you look over the bluff and it's hard to imagine what happened there but mm. then you look around and you're surrounded by these thousands of
0: 9,387 marble crosses and mm-hmm. stars yeah. of David it's interesting that um, I understand that the families of officers had the option to ship their bodies home, and they s- chose to stay with
4: their oh, men. I think pretty much everybody had the option. Did they? I think and pretty mm. much everybody had the option. But yeah, they, they, they chose offered them to, to be cho- buried A lot down. of people chose chose to keep their, their relatives down there, yeah. And a disproportionate yeah. number
0: of officers opted to stay there mm-hmm. to be with their mm-hmm. fallen mm-hmm. comrades. Yes. Phil, your your take on the cemeteries of uh, D-Day?
7: Uh very very, very sobering, I had a uh, an opportunity to actually go to that American cemetery before and after hours i 'd made arrangements because mm. i 'm a photographer and I wanted to get some shots in optimum light. I, I was very fortunate to be there alone for a little while, but I went again during the day and it 's just you, you can 't understand how sobering it is unless you 're there I think, and several of the other cemeteries too went to uh the big German cemetery near Carantin, I think, and the Canadian cemetery in the other direction. I was
0: going to say, it's important to go to a German cemetery because these yes. were kids that were enlisted into the army to fight Hitler's war, and they had no choice, and they were falling like flies there. And uh, there's just uh, awe-inspiring cemeteries for every country that yes. that was uh, part of that, that, that horrific time. Phil, thanks for your call.
7: Hey, thanks very much for having me.
0: Yep. So much to see and so much to experience as you travel the countryside of France.
4: Absolutely, there's so much to see. Patrick Vidal, Tony Clark, merci bien. Merci. Merci, à bientôt.
2: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including information about visiting Mont-Saint-Michel in Normandy. Thanks to Sarah McCormick and our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut, for their help today. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
7: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence, the Riviera, and Rick's French Phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.